Hello from Lahinch County Clare, I'm Rory McKiernan, author of Hitching for Hope and host of the Love and Courage podcast. And you're very welcome to this, the Creative Souls of Clare podcast. You can find a video version of this podcast online, both on Facebook and on YouTube. Just look up the Creative Souls of Clare podcast. A huge thanks to all who support the podcast, including Creative Ireland Clare, Clare County Council Community Support Scheme, and to all you listeners for tuning in, subscribing, sharing, rating and reviewing the podcast. This is a not-for-profit community effort aimed at sharing wisdom, stories and ideas and igniting new sparks of culture, imagination and creativity and all your support is hugely appreciated. My guest in this episode is Ruth Marshall. Ruth is a poet, author, storyteller and crafter living in East Clare. Originally from Scotland, Root is a passionate weaver between the worlds of the arts, culture and heritage. And she's the author of three books, Celebrating Irish Festivals, which is about the traditional Irish seasonal festivals, and also Clare Folktales and Limerick Folktales. And her first book of poetry is making its way towards publication. Now, without further ado, let's get started with this creative Souls of Clare conversation with Ruth Marshall. Ruth, you're very welcome to the Creative Souls of Clare podcast. Can you tell me where you're joining me from today and maybe describe a little bit of what's around you in that part of the world? Okay, Um, sure. I'm up in East Clare, um, between Bodike and Broadford. So it's kind of gentle Drumlin country. Yeah. And um, I'd be... Well, I'm sitting upstairs in what used to be my son's bedroom, which has over the last year turned into where I Zoom from. Um, And I get a lovely view out from here uh, over towards uh, Fico Mahara, the TV mast over there, which, (laughs) you know, lights up the night. Okay, gotcha. And so you mentioned you've been doing a, a, a. It sounds like you've been doing a bit of a lot of zooming there. Have you been zooming around the world, or what? What has Zoom world been like for you? <laughs> oh no, I I haven't done an enormous amount of Zoom. I have to say, I I um I joined a couple of courses. I learned a few things, kind of some essential skills that I needed when. Um, a lot of the arts projects I had had lined up for uh, working in schools or with groups, you know, disappeared um, with the lockdowns. Mm. And then there was um, Clare Arts Office, I think, organised some courses online with, um, what's his name, Michael Fortune, um, on filming with your phone and making short videos and and so on so I took part in those and you know and then yeah made a few wee bits of um you know a few wee bits of video that carried some of that work for a little while lovely so you're obviously a believer in the the idea of lifelong learning would that be right oh yeah I'd say so yeah. Um, you're you're always kind of well. You just reading more about you as well. You strike me as someone who's who's never going to be too idle. Like you're you're constantly kind of either <laughs> learning or, or teaching in a way. I don't know if you consider yourself a teacher as such, but um, I think inadvertently, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, I I suppose a lot of what I would do. Um, is facilitation, yeah. Um, more, I, I guess I'd kind of see it more as holding the space for people to, um, what, express their creativity and rather than teaching the skills. Yeah. You know, um, you know, some of my background would have been in kind of transpersonal kind of group work. Ah, very um, and you know, yeah, things like sacred dance, um, oh, soul making, and and so on. But creativity has always been like the red thread that kind of carries through most yeah. of what I do. When I hear you talk about um, transpersonal work and uh, sacred dance, and then hearing your accent, 
I can't <laughs> not help think of Findhorn in Scotland. Would you have yeah. any kind of links to that place? Yeah, well, sure. You know, as a as a teenager, I would have heard about the enormous um, cabbages that they grew in Findhorn, and you know, and and about how um, the way of their way of working in cooperation with the nature spirits and the elementals. And that would have, you know, that pricked my ears up as a teenager and would have become very much a part of how I would operate, mm. you know, in the world. Mm. So, so yes, without going and living at Findhorn, um, a, a lot of uh, what emerged from there has has influenced me, mm. and and yes, some of the training that I've done in my life has come directly from Findhorn. Yeah. So let's stay with that time when you were a teenager. Can you tell me a little bit about what you were like and where were you? What part of Scotland was that in, and what was young mm. Ruth up to? Mm. Well. I grew up in um, East Kilbride, which is a new town near Glasgow. You know, so um, here you could liken it to, say, Tala or Shannon, that kind of thing. I I know it. I I went to university in Paisley outside Glasgow. Okay. Oh, lovely. Right. Okay. So you know where I am. You know what I'm talking about. I do, yeah. 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 So... um, my parents would have been kind of first generation um, after the kind of slum clearance and um, redevelopment. You know, the idea was to create better housing and create a new community yeah. for people. So they would have moved there in the 1950s at the start of the new town. So I grew up there in a place that didn't really have history. <laughs> so... Um, I think that fed into um, my journey mm-hmm. in um, kind of developing a sense of an interest in kind of archaeology, the Celtic past, etc. Um, as a well, probably as a, in my early teens. But one of the key things really would have been um, family holiday to the Isle of Mull in my early teens and going over to visit Iona, um, you know, every other day in a little motorboat along with some sheep or something. So, and um, on, on, on the island of Iona, I don't know, do you, do you know the island? It's, it's, it's where Colum Keogh landed when he left Ireland in exile. Yeah, I know of it. And it's it's very much, um, it, it strikes me as a part, a core part of when Ireland and Scotland were almost the one nation in a way. Yeah, yeah. Well, sure, yeah. And, you know, with the movement of the Scots, the Dalriada from Ireland gotcha. to the west of Scotland, yeah, and, 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 the settlement then on Iona would have kind of linked in with that, but it was also a, a, a focal point for spirituality. Yeah. And again, that old kind of early Christianity that was more um, earth-based, you know, than it, than it became later on. Yeah. Um, but what I what I found in you know as a 12, 13 year old on Iona was stuff that just woke up my senses in a way that um, nothing had prior to that. You know, I remember walking along just a little pathway by the edge of a field and the air was full of the sound of bees, you know, just busy, buzzing away. The field was full of red clover. So, you know, bright, bright pink um, like a sea of it. And the air was also full of the scent of those flowers, you know, and it smelled like honey. And, you know, sure, the sun must have been out or a breeze or whatever, but I'd never experienced my senses so vividly before. Um, and it 
yeah, it woke something up in me, you know. Mm-hmm. And I sure I could go on, I could say more about that, but um what it what it went down as in my personal history, if you like, is like I I I met something very profound there that changed me and woke um woke something up in me. Like I spent hours lying by the side of a stream just watching the water move, you know, through the stones. And I wrote my first poems there. And yeah, oh, after we went home after that holiday, I had to tell my parents, I'm not going to church anymore. I met something that was real. And it doesn't exist in the church buildings that we usually go to, you know. So I can't go there anymore because that's not real. So do you get what I mean? <laughs> I do, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So so that was um hmm. it was a very formative experience at a relatively young age, like in terms of to to set your future direction in a in a sense. In well, well, yes, in a way. Uh, at that time, I, I I felt like it was a bardic initiation. Mm. You know, this is it. This is what I am. <laughs> you know, um, now sure, as life goes on, I made lots of bad decisions. You know, and I and I maybe should have gone to university and studied English literature or something. But do you, you think know. so? Do you think so? Really? Oh, I well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, some things might have been a, a, a more direct route if I had made different decisions. But, you know, maybe I took the colourful path um, or the, the green road to fairyland or something. <laughs> yeah, but is there any other way? Huh? Is there a direct path? <laughs> oh. You know, it's it strikes me that the to be involved in folklore and and spirituality and creativity that it's implicit that almost there is no direct line that it, you have to follow the the merry magical yellow brick road. <laughs> <laughs> follow the yellow brick road. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I tell you, just uh, this may be a digression, but just. Um, the last what five years, I've I've spent the summer months working as a, a tour guide on Scattery Island down in West Clare, and at the start of the summer, there's a a path, a grassy path that leads you up the hill to the highest point on the island, and that's known as the Hill of the Angel. But that grassy path is covered in daisies. You know, so when you're walking, when you're walking up that path uh, to the to Knocknanangle, the Hill of the Angels. You're walking this daisy path, which is just like that. I think that, um, yeah, that that road to Fairyland. Love it. <laughs> so, Ruth, tell me. Um, so, so you didn't you didn't go to university then? What did you do from from this point of transformation? Oh no, I did go to university. Oh, I, okay. I, I I made a mess of my first year altogether. You know, I was I was studying maths, chemistry, and biology oh, in my gosh. first year. You know, yeah. largely because the one and only careers guidance meeting I had, um, the counsellor told me, you know, there's a shortage of women in the sciences, and I said, all right, I'll go into the sciences. <laughs> Oh, um, sure. Totally, you know, total mess of my first year. Um, too much of, you know, the sex and drugs and rock and roll, I think. And um, but at the end of that year, I changed tack and I carried on with the biology and that I went on to botany to specialise more in plants. And, and I, took up arche- I took up the archaeology course because I realised I'd already read all those books anyway on the reading list. And, um, and a year of drama, 
you know, so an eclectic mix, maybe, you know, but um, mm, that's what I ended up yeah. doing there. Never up, worked in the field of it, okay. you know, right. but... So, so um, take, take, fast forward to post-university, where, where did life take you then? Oh, well, I would have ended up in uh, an area in the north of Scotland known as the Black Isle. This is um, just across the Murray Firth from Findhorn, actually, just to uh, reconnect in there. And um, I would have spent some time there as part of the, what, mm, well, firstly, I worked as a folklore collector um, and then I became part of a worker cooperative running a, a whole food shop that served as a bit of a, a kind of alternative hub for the Highlands. And, um, and I suppose it's through that I would have, in the end, connected in a bit with Findhorn. Um, I would have been involved in um, kind of the women's movement, um, the anti-nuclear movement, you know, all those things that were kind of big at that time. That's in mm. the 80s. And there was one particular uh, weekend in September one year. There was a, a what was called a snowball campaign was going on. People were... Uh, camping, doing peace camps outside the gates of a number of different um, REF bases around the whole of the UK. So myself and uh, some other women were camped outside REF Kinloss, just round from Findhorn. And it snowed all weekend and we were freezing. Oh my God. And, you know, a minibus came from Findhorn um, with women bringing us flasks of soup and saying, jump on the bus, come on back with us and have hot showers. And it was a, a beautiful introduction to, you know, the, the real sense of community and care yeah. and kind of radiating love that there is from the Fintorn community. Yeah. So, so act, in a sense, activism was kind of a part of your life would you would you consider yourself an activist in that sense still or then um, not really um i mean as part of my own my own individual path mm. i i kind of developed this concept of knitting the world better is is what i'd think of it as it doesn't mean I need to be well I think at my age now I mean I'm 65 at the moment and which is actually feels a lot younger than I would have imagined 65 to feel but um, I don't need to be out marching and whatever you know that's I think I really feel that's something for a different part of one's life I I make things and I imbue those things that I make with um, what I feel is uh, a healing presence, you know, and that's how I send out into the world to effect change, um, I think. <laughs> um, I hope I'm not kidding myself with that now, you know. But for instance, here we go. Last year when we were in lockdown, I was given a, an alpaca fleece. And I, round about the same time, read something on Facebook that um, alpaca DNA was discovered to have something in it that would help... Um, Oh, I don't know. Somebody was testing and there was supposed to be something that would help, um, maybe not cure, but work with things like COVID. Oh, I, I actually read that in a national mm -hmm. newspaper like two days ago that uh, oh, wow, really? hazel spray from alpaca DNA for COVID. Yeah, so... Well, there you go. So, so... 
having encountered that and having acquired this um, alpaca fleece, I, I did a lot of spinning and I knitted myself my personal protective sweater. Oh, yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> my, my anti-COVID sweater. Um, sure, that was last year's. Um, I was given so many sheep fleeces. I had some black fleeces and some white fleeces. And as I observed, as the the pandemic went on and on, I, I saw and, and was really hurt by the division um, between people who oh, seemed to really polarise um, between being, you know, anti-mask, anti-vax, anti-anti-everything, this is all a con. And on the other side, people who were, you know, taking just as hard line a stance. And, and because people weren't meeting face to face, these these were just causing divisions. And, and I felt this isn't helpful. Um, these, this situation is not black and white. So I took my black and white fleeces and, you know, began to blend the fibres of each. To, and, and I knitted my, um, well, I knitted my everything is not black and white sweater. Mm. You know, that was my, um, I suppose, my creative response to to the division there. And so I wear that as a um as a means of trying to bridge the divide between extremes. You know, and sure it's not all just grey. It's you know it's variegated um I guess rather than one you know just going all grey and indistinct. Mm. There's lots of different shades in there. Mm. And and I think you know, we need to be able to acknowledge those different shades in all of our opinions and give each other space to be heard with them. Yeah, that, that idea of hearing different voices when perhaps we don't like those voices or they're uncomfortable. Um, you did mention earlier about that, the, the work around facilitation, for instance. So can you tell me when that first began in your life or where you first experienced that of, of being involved in facilitated groups or circles and so on? Yeah. Um, now, when would that have happened? I mean, I suppose in the, in the kind of early to mid-80s, um, when I'd have been part of um, things like what were at that time called consciousness raising groups and um, and would have been learning a bit about different healing um, in adverted commas I guess methods um, I suppose I would have been observing others facilitation and kind of realizing the difference between that and um, being the expert teaching, you know. But it would have been quite a long time after that that I would have um, begun to, to hold space in that way myself. Um, probably late 90s or something like that, I'd, I'd say I, I would have started... Um, Bits of training in uh, sacred dance facilitation, soul making, etc., and and the teaching of different types of energy healing, and um, I suppose the other thing as part of that was I I kind of inherited. Um, the editorship of um, Network Ireland, a holistic magazine. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember your name um, from that time. I don't know. Was it your mother? I was probably my mother or my father or both, because um, 
Yeah, well, I was growing up in rural County Cavan and there wouldn't have been a huge amount of access to alternative uh, thinking or information. And I do remember seeing this magazine on the kitchen table, you know. Yeah. So, you know, so that would have been um, another of the ways my kind of holding the threads together. Yeah. Like, you know, for 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 others to do um, the good work in the world, I think, you know, it's I didn't need to be the one who was doing it if I could just hold the space for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really uh, powerful role. Uh, I think sometimes it's often referred to or could be referred to as servant leadership where one is serving from behind in a sense and that often we understand leadership as the person up front. But it's so important that somebody stays behind and keeps the the ship fueled and so on. Oh, that's a nice way of seeing it. And... um, Certainly in my in my years in that role, um I I was aware that I was invisible, you know, and um I know if I was out and about at workshops or whatever and people would hear my name, they'd say, Oh, I know you, you're so and so, and they'd think they knew me. Mm. And and I realised no, but you don't know me because I keep myself out of it. I just I you know I hold this, yeah. So mm, interesting. Yeah, and then I'm quite struck by the fact that you've you know in essence had a direct influence in my upbringing. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, and, yeah. and, and no doubt many many others. And uh, I suppose that's you know the essence of a lot of cultural work is that we don't always see or know the impact and have to almost trust that if we show up with integrity and the right intention then and the work is of a sufficient standard that it will ripple out and take whatever form it takes. Yep, yep, yep. And, um, oh, and, the, and there's something... Um, there's something kind of magical about being able to just um, re- remain invisible in that way and just let the let the work happen, let the work spread, let the let, let the cloak spread like Bridget's cloak. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I suppose even particularly now, well, we've always had it, but the idea of a kind of individualistic uh, society where the cult of the individual is revered and maybe everybody wants to be a hero or that the aspiration is to be seen and to be known. But what that can engender is a very ego-based society. Mm. Well, I think we kind of need a balance between those, you know, where, um, <clears throat> where the individual can be seen Absolutely. when it's, you know, the important um important moment for that but so long as we can keep that ego aside you Mm. know there's nothing wrong with ego and and having a healthy ego that's about presence and being able to kind of stand up in the world and say this is what I am Mm. but um, I know it when it gets into something beyond that and it be, I suppose it becomes narcissistic maybe mm. um, yeah yeah I, I once heard the term uh, around facilitation of you know when you're introducing a group that you encourage um, sometimes encourage the quieter people to step forward and, and the louder people to step back and it's to know when to step forward and to know when to step back and in I guess in any lifetime, we have a time where we step forward or are asked to or, you know, mm-hmm. that that there is a time for the individual. And I think that that sometimes the collective societies perhaps repress the individual as well, that we can romanticize collectivism. Mm. Oh, what 
What comes to mind for me here just now is my son's experience. Mm. He's, how old are you, Rory? I, I can't divulge that now. <laughs> I'm, 40, I'm 43. Okay, so he's about 10 years behind you. Yeah. But, you know, has spent a few years living in um, Vietnam and currently I'm Taiwan. Very- so in... Um, in societies that operate very much more in that collectivistic way rather than the individual, yeah? So, and just, there's a there's a whole different perspective on things. Um, certainly, you know, some things are more prescribed. Proscribed, is that the word? Restricted and limited, you know, you have to exist within these um, narrow guidelines. But yeah, at the same time, when it came to um, what? When it came to dealing with uh, the pandemic, Mm. for example, things could just close down, stop, and people respected the the boundaries on that in a way that here in the more highly individualistic West, um, people would resist that as an infringement of freedom. Yeah, Um, that's an interesting one. I did did read during the pandemic that many of the societies who fared better were more collectivised because they were taking mm -hmm. on the well-being of the collective rather than the individual. And there probably are times for that. Yeah. Yeah. So again, another one of these things that you need to find the balance between, yeah. you know, that um, and and find the way of um, respecting both. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than either or. Um, yeah. So Ruth, and another way you've come into my life inadvertently is um, I have we have a book um, in our house here, Folk Tales of Clare, and um, so your name is actually sitting there for several years right in front of me. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be curious now to know. Well, well, at some point in this story, we're going to have to make the leap from Iona over through. <laughs> you, you obviously ended up in Ireland somehow, so we'll have to talk that, and uh, and then more so specifically how. We well, we both ended up in Clare in different parts, but um, and then you know it's 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 not strange in any way based on everything you've said how you would end up in folk tales, um, but obviously folklore and and heritage has been a big part of the journey. Hmm. Well, sure, I would have. Um, I've been living in Clare for. Mm, must be about 35 years at this stage. Um, And I suppose I I first came to Ireland um, just hitching with a friend with the attention of going to visit Newgrange and this and that and whatever, but um, ended up in Clare and kind of felt, oh, I think this is where I belong, you know. And I went back home. Home at the time was in Verness, and thought, yeah, I can't, I can't stay here any longer. No, I sold up all my furniture, and I set off later that summer, and came to came to Ireland as a woofer. Do you know Woof, the yeah. organisation? Yeah. You essentially volunteer your labour in exchange for food and board with mostly organic farms, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, At that time, it was, yeah, what was it, working weekends on organic farms or something like that. So I I came with my backpack and um, I kind of knew I was coming to Clare, but I just, you know, kind of thought I'd better go a few other places first just to... You know, just to be sure, to be sure. <laughs> and <laughs> um, the one place that I was going or or was hoping to go 
I said, oh, well, we can't take you, but this friend of ours might. So, you know, I wrote to them. Of course, we didn't have email. We didn't have Zoom, et cetera, back then. You did it all by writing letters to to, to each other. So I, I wrote to this, um, this family who were listed in, in the WOOF directory and um, got a letter back from... Uh, the man of the family saying, well, you know, things have changed here since you um, since you first wrote. My wife and I have just separated. I have custody of my two of the two children. Um, I'll understand if you don't want to come, but you know, but you're very welcome anyway. And then there was a PS at the bottom. PS, there's a group of us here talking about starting a school. And there was something about that PS. Um, I didn't have children yet at that time, but something about that PS told me that's part of my destiny. (laughs) You know, that's where I'm going. So so I went there, ended up in in East Clare, um, having arrived in in fecal on a Sunday afternoon and it was like something out of you know the wild west movies um tumbleweed <laughs> going along the empty road a dog asleep in the middle of the road and I'm walking along there wondering how on earth do I find you know, where I'm going there's nobody to ask um but sure ended up there and with with this group of people who were um, planning to start a school because their kids needed it, they weren't thriving within the the current mm. system. Um, so that became that was Cooling Bridge um, School that became Raheen Wood Steiner School. Um, so again, that would have been something that you know, had a big influence on me in a way um, and being part of the growth of that. My, my, you know, my son, when he was born, he went through the Steiner School and um, I later uh, did the training as a Steiner kindergarten teacher. Not that I ever became one, but, you know, the, the training was interesting. Um, yeah. I, I certainly heard of that school and I... I I suspect that it was possibly one of the first in Ireland, was it? It, it was, yeah. Um, there, there was a, a Steiner School in, in Hollywood in the north, but um, Cooling Bridge, yeah, was the first in the, in the Republic. Yeah, yeah. And then um, now we have a, a Steiner School in Ennis Diamond, which I'm sure was in part yeah. at least influenced by the, yours or connected in some way. And I think they can be so instrumental in revitalizing communities as well. Like I know the one in Ennis Diamond has brought so many families and young people into the locality. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I'd, well, I'd agree, you know, and and I think anybody who chooses to send their kids to a, a Steiner school is going on a journey of initiation themselves you know it's part of the um trying to work together consciously as community you're going to be faced with um your own shadow you know and you're going to see that projected (laughs) onto teachers or other parents or whatever around you but you're going to be challenged to deal with that you know yeah Um, yeah, the you know the way that the the way that the curriculum is planned for um, or the primary curriculum anyway in a in a Steiner school it takes kids through kind of a, a like a journey of evolution and um, they learn particular skills at particular ages. Uh, you know, over over the course of what what ideally would be their seven years mm. in in primary. Um, now, I didn't really know anything about that when I, you know, when I arrived. I learned 
as I suppose really as my son went through the the school, you know, um, could see the benefits of what um, of the way that the system worked. Now I think it's maybe a little different now that um, you know that some of the Steiner schools have uh, state funding and so have to um, conform to. Uh, aspects of 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 the national curriculum. I mean, they, you can do that, I think, but it might change the nature of it. Yeah. So when you said you, t- you observed sort of benefits to the young people or even your son, what would you say are those benefits, and are how do they specifically then relate to, for instance, creativity and people finding their own creative spark? Um. It's just what I observe um, from him and, you know, and friends, kids who went through uh, the Steiner School as well. I see them as the adults they are now having, you know, having arrived there with a much better sense of who they are and, and, and how to be in the world. In, they they also I, th- I think seemed to have more of a sense of being kind of world citizens mm. rather than um, you know being of a particular little place where they grew up. Um, you know that I think would have affected me and my generation. You know they. Um, I think part of part. Part of that is due to the education that they had, um, but also mm, that they perhaps that they mixed with a more kind of multi multi multinational is not the right word for it, but you know what I mean. Yeah, a more um, cos- cosmopolitan. Um, don't know. Um, essentially different backgrounds and yeah yeah and so did you see then like you know the role of the arts and and crafts for instance playing a more pivotal role there for children oh yeah well absolutely you know I know that you know, certain craft skills are taught at certain ages within the Steiner system. And it's, you know, there are things that, um, oh, I haven't got the facts to my at my fingertips here just now, but I know there are certain things that, that happen in child development at certain ages. And... Um, the use of the fingers, the use of the hands to carry out specific tasks relates to this in some ways. Um, learning about, about knitting and crochet and whatever gets the fingers moving. You know, nowadays, nowadays so many kids only use their fingers and thumbs to work keyboards. Yeah, you know? that's a good point, yeah. But um, working with wool is... It's so much more than that. You know, it's more than just making something. It's experiencing warmth in the in the the texture of it and um and and winding in in particular directions kind of mimics something that's going on internally in the development of the young person. And then, you know, when they get on to when they get on to sewing and they do cross stitch at a particular age, and there's something there um, that they do about mirroring what's going on on one side to what's going on on the other. You know, it's like seeing, you can imagine the spine as the midline. And so you're bringing things into balance by being able to to mirror what's going on on the other side. I don't know enough about that. Yeah, I'm afraid, yeah, yeah. But, that's very interesting. Uh, um, and just um, moving back to your own uh, life, Ruth, and your own work uh, specifically then, you've now got, I think, three books. Uh, yeah. 
Clare Folk Tales, Limerick Folk Tales, and uh, let me think what the other one was. Irish Festivals, was it? Mm, mm. Yeah. So yeah. At what point did you start writing and why did you start writing? I I have I've always been writing. I mean, it's just something I've always done. Um, you know, and I suppose at some point in my life it was writing articles for magazines, other yeah. points in my life it was writing poetry, etc. But the um this the the festivals book, um that's something that kind of within the Steiner Waldorf parents world, there was a book that most families would have had at one time called Festivals, Families and Food, which looked at kind of the seasonal festivals of the year in England largely and other cultures, and then looked at ways of celebrating that within your family. And um, so I had a copy of that. You know, we all had a copy of that. And um, at a certain point, um, what had I been doing? I think I'd had a year uh, working as an instructional designer. So that, you know, what that meant was I was writing the text uh, for some online training. And... I think it was probably the first job I got paid really well for. That was working for an American company who had a bit of a base in Limerick. Um, but over the course of that year, all of my energy was going into writing this stuff for money. <laughs> yeah. And I realised my own writing is suffering because of this. I've no time to do my own writing. Oh, wish this would come to an end. So I've only just had that thought and then I get a call telling me, eh, can you come to an emergency meeting tomorrow? So at the emergency meeting, it's announced to myself and the other outsource workers, we're, um, we're terminating your contracts. And everybody else's faces were tripping them and I'm thinking, yay! <laughs> no, time to focus on my own writing here. So the very next thing is I go home and I read a newsletter that has come out from the, the Steiner School. And there's an advert there um, for this publisher in England, Hawthorne Press, was looking for copy editors. And um, I thought, oh, well, I could do that. You know, I've just been working for this crowd. I've been working remotely for them. I could work for them from, from here. So I got in touch, told them a bit about myself, my background, what I'd been doing up until then. And they got back in touch with me and they said, hmm, don't think we want you as a copy editor, but what would you think about, you know, we have this series of books about celebrating festivals what would you think about writing our our Irish festivals book and I said hmm yeah I've thought about that many times <laughs> you know thanks for asking so I had the contract to write the book and really? you know and just took it from there that really strikes me that uh whether it's subconscious or universal or whatever's going on there that you know, at some level of your being, you didn't you didn't consciously dictate that you wanted to write the festival's book, but you had created all these conditions that teed it up perfectly. Yep, yep. And you know, and you know how it is that you hear people all the time who want to write a book, and they write a book, and then they struggle to find. Uh, a publisher or an agent or whatever it is to take it on, and and sometimes people ask me, how did you how did you get that published? And I say, it didn't work that way for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was presented with an opportunity because all the bits were there in place. All the bits were there. Yeah. In fact, like I just I won't dwell on it but my own uh my own book got published um anyway I'll try and be brief about this but uh, it uh 
it, it got rejected by all the main Irish publishers. And then I decided to self-publish. Uh-huh. Then um, I was quite happy with that decision. And then out of the blue, an email from a respected American publisher came and they wanted to publish it because they'd heard about it and they'd listened to a podcast that I did. So in some ways, it was because of the podcast that I was doing that this opportunity came. And that then allowed my book to go into the United States and Canada and all over the world, whereas the Irish ones wouldn't have. So it's funny, you just you can only do so much planning and strategizing and then the other bits work in their own mysterious ways I've no idea how that works but it's entirely fascinating yeah I mean something similar happened with when it came to the folktales books um I'd been you know I'd been working as a storyteller for a while in schools and museums and so on and I got a phone call one day from a a friend who was a storyteller in Leitrim and phoned me up to say, I've just heard there's this crowd, they're bringing out uh, a folktales book for each of the counties in Ireland. They've done the same or they're doing the same in the UK, but they're doing this in Ireland now and um, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to do the Leitrim one, she says. Why don't you get in touch? You could be doing the clear one. So so I got in touch with them to say, I've just heard you're doing this. I'm interested. Um, You know, what's what's the story? You're already a published author at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so um, told them a bit of what I'd been doing. Now, I did have in the back of my mind, sure, maybe Eddie Lenehan should be writing the Clare book, you know. Um, And I thought, I'd better mention them just in case, you know. What if Eddie sends the fairies against me, you know, if I go and do that? (laughs) But but they came back to me and they said, well, that's, you know, that's all well and good. Thanks for mentioning. Um, But... It's you were talking to. Yeah, I love that. I love that that you um because that there could be that there could be the potential for the imposter syndrome there to go, well, that I that's Eddie's Eddie's owns that space or whatever. I'm not that. And then that's where you don't step forward in the way that we were talking about earlier about the leadership bit. But yeah. you also did recognize the collective there as well, you know. You, you recognize the and just allowed it to take its own course there. Well, well, yeah, I, f- I felt it was only fair yes. to, you know, to to mention there is this other person who's, you know, so much more well known than I am. Yeah. You know, maybe you'd rather. But um, yeah, it was it was lovely to, you know, to, to it was and it was a lovely journey, you know, uh, working on that, working yeah. on that wee book. Yeah. Yeah, and now you're you're moving towards your next fourth book in in poetry, and uh, I I believe you've done a little bit of work with uh, with a friend of mine, Grace Wells, who um, she's actually been on this podcast as a poet. Mm-hmm. So uh, so tell me yeah. about the poetry and and how that's come up. Well, obviously it started back in Iona, and yeah, and it never went away, really. You know, yeah. Yeah. Um, I I have written poetry consistently through my life, but. And and had stuff published here and there over the years, and um, sure would you know would have long ago kind of been part of more of a collective with poetry and Claire. I, I would have with with uh, another um, old friend and poet started something called the Poetry Collective mm. in Claire long time ago, but. Um, Sure, sometimes life gets in the way and, you know, you have to go and do other things. But but poetry's always been there. So I had a kind of enormous body of work. And a few years ago, decided, OK, it's time I, you know, put some of this together and just got, got a collection out there. Um, there was certainly plenty of material. But I had I had an invitation to send a collection somewhere, 
and did, but then didn't hear anything for, you know, years and thought, okay, well, what am I going to do next? Um, Feeling a bit frustrated by that. And then the notion arrived, maybe maybe it would be good to work with a mentor here on kind of getting... um, I'm getting some help with structuring a collection. I have all the work, but how to group things together to make a a cohesive whole, really, you know, and what to leave in, what to leave out. And um, I applied for funding to, to have a series of mentoring sessions with Grace. And, well, and I wasn't successful in... In, in that. I, I had felt so certain I was going to get this funding and I was going to work with her on this. But, you know, it came as a real surprise when I didn't get the funding. But a, a month or two later, um, another opportunity arose um, through Munster Literature Centre announced they were offering a series of mentorships and the poetry mentorship was with Grace Wells. So I applied for that and this time, you know, ha- um, was approved with that. And I've I've found it really helpful work, yeah, working with Grace on that to, you know, to have her kind of mirroring back to me what's working, what's not mm-hmm. working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... At the moment, I have my final mentoring session with Grace later this week, and um, and then it will be, you know, looking for somewhere. Oh my goodness, is this the first time I'm going to be out there looking for somewhere rather than just having somebody saying, yeah. hey, you've got a poetry collection, would you just send it here? Well, <laughs> it sounds like given your past form, somewhere will find you as well. <laughs> Yeah, uh, in fact, you'll be all right. Um, but uh, so there's there's no shortage of um, creative impulse that keeps coming through you. It sounds like it's just an inherent part of how you live that you will always be up to something, as they say. But <laughs> uh, well, I think in some ways my hands always have to be busy. Mm. You know, I'm and. Yeah, I hope that's not coming from, you know, the childhood thing of, oh, the devil will find work for idle hands. Um, But just, I like to be making things. Mm -hmm. And when I, when, when there are times in my life when I can't seem to focus or things don't seem to be working, my kind of default position is make something. You know, and then at least I'm doing something useful. And so, yep. So I end up with socks and jumpers and whatever <laughs> um, as as what. Hmm. I like that. And uh, so would you say that, you know, that there are times where frustration or feeling low or down could come about and that you do actively channel that sort of, sense into that like almost creativity as a antidote for for you know I know what the opposite of depression is but it's like creation could be the opposite of depression in a sense yeah yeah well it's it works for me as a you know as a way um of working through something as well yeah, yeah that um it's like Taking, um, oh, I don't know. Taking the taking the rubbish and sifting through it, and you know, finding the bits of gold in amongst it. Yeah, I guess. I love that. Well, that that feels like a great note to to end on, Ruth. And uh, <laughs> it's I've really enjoyed this hour together now, and I'm sure lots of people will as well. So. Thanks so much, Ruth, and best of luck with the poetry book. I've no doubt it'll uh, fly out the door. <laughs> and, uh, encourage uh, Thank you very much. It's been lovely chatting with you, and I hope we'll meet up for real sometime. Yeah, um, non-Zoom world, yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, and that's great. I'll I'll t- tell my parents as well about the network magazine, and uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's that's great to join those dots. I'm sure you've you've you've, as I said earlier, you've influenced a lot of households, unbeknown to them and you sometimes. But there there's the magic. So so onwards. Thank you again, Ruth. Thank you. Bye bye. Hello, Rory here again. I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Creative Souls of Clare podcast. Can you please consider sharing it with friends and people you think may be interested? And please do subscribe, rate and review the podcast as it helps the podcast grow and reach new listeners. Also consider checking out the archives and my other podcast, the Love and Courage podcast. And you can find out more information on that and my book, Hitching for Hope, over at rurymckiernan.com. Thanks so much for listening and for all your support. Here's to you and your creative journey.